And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It is Thursday. And I am sitting here in what has been described as the Bat Cave. I uh, was on a stream here a couple of, couple of nights ago with Peter Smetty. And they mentioned this uh, this new setup is starting to look like a bat cave. I don't know what he's talking about. It doesn't look a thing like Michael Keaton's bat cave. Well, it kind of maybe does a little bit. <laughs> We're stopping at four monitors, though. Really, we are. I promise. Speaking of Batman, we're going to talk about that here. Just a, a, a quick moment. Let me adjust my chair again. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor-in-chief here at Sci-Fi for Me. And I saw the long Halloween last night. Uh, there's a review on the way. The chat's open. Comments are active. Email is uh, live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. If you are listening to us via podcast player, and there's a number of places where you can find us there, uh, we would appreciate a rating and a review because it helps uh, with search and other people can find us that way. It's helpful. Uh, of course, always, if you, uh, you want to leave comments, that helps the algorithms as well. And we need all the help we can get with rhythm or something like that. How's everybody doing today? Uh, we're toward the end of the week. And I'm tarred. But that's okay. It's all part of the service, right? All right, so speaking of Batman, I, I, I mentioned I watched The Long Halloween Part 1 last night. This is an animated adaptation of the graphic novel by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Uh, and I, I, am, I am of mixed feelings about it. I'm working on a review right now that will go up at sci-fi-for-me.com. I run out of breath. <sighs> that happens a lot more often than it should nowadays. Um, I keep telling Mrs. Boss that I'm getting old. And I keep proving that. <clears throat> so, anyway. Uh, Barry here in the chat. Welcome. Uh, good. It looks a little quiet here. It, uh, it, is, it is quiet a little bit. But we occasionally will stir things up. Um, hopefully, hopefully we don't break Twitter again anytime soon. But, you know, controversy is a thing. If it bleeds, it leads. And that's always, uh, that's always a, 
uh, a byproduct of of being in media, I guess. So the animated adaptation of The Long Halloween is written by Tim Sheridan. And I watched it last night. And if if you have not seen it yet, I'm not going to get into spoilers here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I want you to read the review when I post it. But I have read the book a number of times. I watched the watched the movie, and Mr. Sheridan takes a lot of liberties with the adaptation. It is, I guess you could say, loosely based on the graphic novel by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. It is not a direct, faithful adaptation. There are there are entire scenes that are missing. There are some scenes that have been completely reworked. Uh, there's There are elements of the story that have been excised and uh, for various different reasons. Now, I get the fact that you've got to fit within a time limit. It's an hour and a half, part one, yes. And it goes up through New Year's Eve, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the story. But it has made some changes that... If they hold through part two, the implications of these changes are such that I suspect the ending is going to be completely different from the book. Now, we've run into this before. Warner Brothers Animation doing their adaptation of Hush, for example. The entire third act is completely different from the book. And I suspect that we're going to get something similar to that here. But I will uh, I will go into more detail in my review, uh, and I will post that as soon as I can. All right, so, trouble on the set. There's, there's trouble in River City. It starts with a T. And it ends with Trek. Uh, okay, so this this has been developing a couple of different facets of this. And I want to take a look not at whether or not current Star Trek is good. That's immaterial to the discussion today. It's irrelevant to what we have to, uh, to talk about. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was an actor named Air Andrew Moody who was on the Orville Nation podcast uh, over on the, their YouTube channel. And they were talking mostly about dark matter. And Moody at one point was talking about the atmosphere on set, how things went really smooth and everything was great and wonderful. And it was one of the greatest, one of the best sets that he's been on in terms of various different working conditions and whatnot. And he, and he makes an allusion to the Star Trek Discovery set and, and checks himself and basically sits there and says, well, I have to be very careful about what I say. Now, if you are not familiar with his performance, he was in the second episode of the second season. I don't know that he's been back. That's the only one I find listed on his IMDb credits. 
Uh, speaking of which, I've updated all of the IMDb for Foreign Bodies, our show, and uh, for the current season of Salacious Crumbs, I've got a backlog that I've got to do. But over on IMDb, Andrew Moody is listed as as having a role in the second episode of the second season. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes. He says Jonathan Frakes is a brilliant director. He's a wonderful man. He's a gentleman. Uh, very easy easy to work with and get along with. He's a great director, and everybody's having fun on set. But then he says something troubling on the one hand. It's also interesting on the other because it does put a little bit of a crack into this... Uh, public-facing everything's good at Star Trek uh, narrative that we've been hearing. Uh, Moody says, quote, and I, and I have watched the video, so this is, this is an accurate quote. This is abandoning into comics who's reporting on this, but I have, I have watched the video. He says, quote, the thing I will say about working on Star Trek is I got to work with Jonathan Frakes, and he's a gentleman, he's brilliant, he's a great director, beautiful human being, so supportive, the cast on that set, great people, wonderful people. But I could tell. What I will say is the crew and the cast were traumatized by a production team and a writer's room that was in constant flux and power dynamics where you could just tell they felt threatened. You could tell they felt threatened. And then he goes on to say that he himself was threatened uh, in a way. He doesn't get into very, very much in the way of specifics. But in the process, uh, going from season one to season two, there was a new showrunner that was attached. Michael Chabon was there for season one, and then he left. Um, and, he, and, and Moody is talking about the, the new showrunner for season two not liking Moody's performance. And what they ended up doing is they had him come back in. Uh, during ADR, which is automatic dialogue replacement, but it's what they do, it's, it's the dubbing. So you go in, and if there's sound glitches or if there's problems with the dialogue, you got to clean it up. You got to go back in and re-record the dialogue in certain scenes throughout the throughout the uh, the the picture. And if, if you want an example of a noticeable, I won't say bad, but if you want a noticeable example of ADR listen to the conversation between Kirk and Savick right after the Kobayashi Maru test in Star Trek 2 because Kirk says are you going to go down with the sinking ship and she says permission permission to speak freely permission to speak candidly and she talks about there was no way to win it wasn't a fair test if you listen to that dialogue Kirstie Alley's lines are much cleaner, they're much more, I won't say studio quality, but you can tell that she's talking into a microphone as opposed to Kirk's dialogue, which you can hear, you can hear the bounce of the room where, where they're shooting the, you know, the bridge set. There's a definite difference in quality between those two. And what that is, is Kirstie Alley coming back in and re-recording her lines in a studio, in a, in a, probably in, an, in a little booth, a little soundproof booth, uh, 
and it affects the it affects the tone of a scene if it's done wrong. And so they have Moody coming in to do ADR on his lines, and apparently the story goes that the, the showrunner wanted him to do it completely different from the way he had per- performed it on set. And he gave them a few different different readings and whatnot. Okay, fine. And I guess that they completely replaced his dialogue with somebody else's voice. So it's a completely different performer doing a completely different performance along with his visual in the scene. Now, this is not a new thing. Um, If you look at uh, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, for example, Andy McDowell, all of her dialogue in that movie was dubbed and replaced by somebody else doing the voice because I guess Andy McDowell sounded a little bit too much like she was from the South. And it just, I guess, didn't work for uh, Jane to be from the Southern United States as opposed to England. I don't know. But ADR is something that gets done a lot. All All of the Star Wars movies have done it um, every movie has uh, at least a little bit of ADR because you have various different things. You have room noise, you have wind machines. In the case of, uh, we were just talking about The Empire Strikes Back here on, on Salacious Crumbs Tuesday night. And Mark Hamill had posted on his uh, Twitter account that when they were shooting the I Am Your Father scene, uh, Hamill says that he couldn't hear anything because of the noise of the wind machines. He was acting based on David Prowse's gestures and responding to that. All of that dialogue was recorded later and looped in. So you have to go in and, and you've got to sync up. You have to say it the same way the same pace, the same tone, and all of that that you see on screen so it matches up. So there's a lot of ADR in in the Star Wars movies, but ADR is not unusual for any film production, for any TV production. There is always going to be that stuff. Somebody drops, uh, somebody drops a, a piece of, of equipment or... There's a plane that goes overhead or, you know, a truck passes by or suddenly there's a train and you didn't see it on the schedule, that kind of thing. There are various different reasons why you have to go in and re-record dialogue. But Moody says that his performance was completely replaced on Star Trek Discovery. And, okay, but he says here, Uh, He continues describing the atmosphere and the circumstances over on Star Trek Discovery. He says, quote, but you could just tell that something happened. So the new people at the head of Star Trek, whoever is running it now, they are just terrified of whoever is running it now. He's talking about the cast and crew. Whoever's running Star Trek now is running it with an iron fist, and they didn't like anything that I did, so they completely replaced my voice. I don't know who's voicing my character. He says, and again, I want to make this clear. The director was great. The cast were great. The crew on that show are good people. But you can tell that the production team above them, they are terrorizing those people. And they're just terrified. Talking about cast and crew. Now, I don't know. He doesn't name names. 
I'm not sure if he's talking about Andrew Kurtzman, Akiva Goldsman, uh, Michelle Paradise. Uh, who is he talking about? Who is he referencing? I mean, Michael Chabon is gone as of uh, the end of season one, so he's not talking about that. But he is referencing the change in showrunners. So you look at the timeline. I'm not sure who replaced Chabon because Brian Fuller was gone by that time. Brian Fuller left before they ever even started production. And I don't know if the current showrunner is the showrunner that's been on since season two. But this is this is troubling. Because not 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 from the standpoint of how it affects the the material, the story itself, or any of that. Because you you have that problem separate and apart from all of the rest of this. Because it's this is not how you run a set. It it it's it's. It's just not because if if you're a producer, you know, if you're the showrunner, you're the one who's responsible for all the logistics and making sure that everything is done. Yeah, you've got uh, you've got Alex Kurtzman, you've got Aaron Bears, Heather Kadeen, uh and that could be who he's talking about. I don't know. I doubt he's talking about Rod Roddenberry because Rod's been there since the, be- the very beginning. Um. I don't know. Uh, Tom Tom Pretek, Akiva Goldsman came in uh, later. He, maybe he's talking about Ted Sullivan. Who knows? We're we're not. We don't have names, and and that makes it a little bit more uh, of a of a troubling development because you don't know who he's talking about, and there's nobody to corroborate this. So this is Andrew Moody saying what his impression is of what's going on on the set of Star Trek Discovery. And if there are other actors, other performers who are willing to come out and say this was my experience and it's similar to what Andrew Moody says, then that's going to that's going to add more weight to that allegation. If this is true, and I'm going to allow for the possibility that maybe people were just having a bad day when Moody was on set. Let, let's, let's allow for that possibility. But if this is true, then I can completely understand nobody wanting to be part of this show. Because that's not how you run a railroad. Uh, and, and if I were to do that here, I would not have any staff. I would not have anybody. Now, I have gotten frustrated as the boss, quote unquote. I have gotten frustrated at certain times, certain certain reasons and certain things that have that have gone on in the past 12, 13 years. Um, you know, I I vent privately. For the most part, there have been a couple of times that I have sent a communication out and, and basically expressed my frustration with everything. 
Um, and, and that has not been the normal way of doing business here. And I'm not calling out any specific people or saying, you know, you so-and-so and calling people names and, and going public with any kind of any any kind of personal frustrations with individuals. That would be wrong. But I also am not going to sit there and brutalize my staff and try to beat them into submission in order to give me more material to work with. I can nudge them. Hey, where's that review you were talking about doing? How, how far you got on the review? When can I, when can I see that article you were talking about? You know, but the, the very idea of terrorizing a staff is so antithetical to anything that I've ever been taught about one, how to treat people two, how to manage people in a business environment. And it's, I don't know if this is true. This is a bad look. Uh, it is it is a, a bad environment, a bad working environment to be in. Uh, and yes, Barry, it says Star Trek card seems to have taken plots and scenes from Mass Effect from, for season one. There were a lot of people that noticed that, especially in the finale. Um, and you look at some of the stuff that Kurtzman has done. And since he split off from Roberto Orsi, it's pretty clear that Orsi was the writer between the two of them. Uh, Kurtzman, I'm not sure, is the right person for a creative position. This is kind of the same kind of thing what we were talking about with uh, what's been going on at Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy might be an excellent logistics person in terms of being a producer and handling the nuts and bolts and the and the daily wherewithal and the rigmarole of actually managing a production you know all of the staff all of the all of the resources all of the logistics she might be that person because she has been in the past that's that's what her that's what her role has been but i don't think just from you know outside looking in i don't have any i don't have any justifying uh, justifying underlying reasons for this this is an impression on my part but i don't think kathleen kennedy has a creative bone in her body i don't think that alex kurtzman does either but all of that aside if this is Kurtzman losing his temper, or if this is, you know, Ted Sullivan, or if this is anybody else, regardless of the quality of the finished product, if your cast and crew is being abused in some way, shape, or form by the people what in charge, then the people what in charge should not be in charge anymore, if this is true. I will put that caveat out there because there's no way of knowing. Because we have Andrew Moody's word for it. Nobody else has come forward yet that I know of. 
might this be the 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 foot in the door that kind of kicks things open? I don't know. But then a week later on the Orville Nation podcast again, Heidi Daryl Von Dunker, who is of the Lakota Nation and is part of a, an, organ, an operation called Fifth Dimensional Publishing. They have a, a, I don't know if it's proprietary or not, but they have this thing that they're working on uh, that creates an electronic catalog of pick your subject. And she was on Orville Nation uh, uh, on the 4th, Sunday night. And I was talking about the work that she had done, she and her team had done for Star Trek Discovery. And basically what it was, uh, was taking an inventory of all of the different things related to Star Trek. The props, the costumes, set designs, uh, how things were manufactured, how things were built, where things were stored... So if anybody needed it again, you know, reference material from past episodes and other shows, uh, basically a continuity Bible for the internal production team. This was not anything for public consumption. It was so that the production team, the props people and the set designers and the costume people had reference material. If they ended up going back to use something that we've seen before, they'd have this this electronic Bible of sorts that would say this is what it was. And she describes having the meeting, the pitch meeting, to talk about what it was that they were going to be able to do with this thing. And she says, Michelle Paradise was very interested in it. And Akiva Goldsman seems to be a little interested, but they skipped over a lot of different things. And according to her, once she delivered a proof of concept for free, this was on spec is what we call it in the industry. It's called on spec. Basically, you're just going to say, okay, I'm going to put this thing together. Most of the time, it's a script. And I'm going to take it out and I'm going to use this script as my calling card. This is how I find an agent. This is how I find a publisher. Uh, this is how I find funding for my film. I have the script. Nobody's asking me for it. Nobody hired me to do it. I'm doing it completely on my own in the hopes that it gets me an opportunity to either write for this show or direct this series or publish this book or whatever. So she does this thing on spec, takes it in and says, this is what I can do for the Star Trek productions so you guys can all keep track of everything that's going on with all of the different things that you've done over the years. And they seem to be interested, according to, this, uh, according to this story. And they asked her for a second one. And apparently there are contracts that are in place. And she has not been paid. None of her team has been paid. And according to her information, it seems like the, the Discovery team is using some form of this thing that she put together. Now, having it done on spec, 
<clears throat> you take your chances. You roll the dice, you sit there, and you hope that they buy what it is you're selling. If they don't, then you can shop it around to some other people. But according to uh, Heidi, uh, they call her the Star Trek Tinkerbell. But according to her, uh, when she decided to start shopping this around, she's she's done this uh, with, you know, she's consulted with NASA uh, as part of the Lakota Nation. She's, uh, she's coordinated and consulted with uh, uh, presidential administrations, people at the White House, about uh, indigenous Native American relations and that sort of thing. And she puts this thing together and it's something that the architecture of, of the thing, how it's all assembled and put together, this could be something that has applications in other places. And she's even said in a number of, uh, a number of times in the interview that this is ideal for when you're bringing people on board your, your staff. Here's this reference. Here's all of this that you, you know, it's, it's your primer for the staff. If you're onboarding in HR, here's a thing that you can use. And, and it's not just Star Trek where this thing would have applications. But she also says that when she started to, to shop it around, she was threatened with legal action because apparently they're making a claim on it that maybe they don't necessarily have. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely clear on the details because as much as, as much as the Orville nation guys have, have managed to do a number of these interviews and, and podcasts, this one kind of goes various different places all over. So it's kind of hard to follow and her audio is not that good. But my impression is that she did this thing on spec. They liked it enough to ask for ask her for a real one. And then they're using those files. They've they've taken those files. They've taken elements of that at least. Her understanding is that they're using something on set that is similar or, or pieces of what she's proposed and CBS uh, secret hideout are not honoring the contracts that they had in place with her and uh, other, other members of the Lakota nation who were doing this work. And so now she's four months behind on rent and, and various different, you know, in she's in financial straits. And there's a, there's a couple of GoFundMes to help deal with legal uh, legal fees and, and living expenses and stuff. But this idea that uh, Secret Hideout, which is Alex Kurtzman's operation, would come in and do this, again... This is an allegation from one person. We don't have anything corroborating these stories yet. And if anything else does come out, we'll see what develops. Uh, and, and, you know, Heidi's sitting there saying, you know, I, I don't want I don't want this to be a huge big thing. I mean, she's willing to work with them. And that's the impression that I get from this interview. She's willing to work with Secret Hideout again. She just wants to get paid for the work that she's already done. Now, if I go in 
and I write a script. I actually did this. I've wrote a script for Star Trek The Next Generation. They had, at the time, uh, an open submission policy, which basically said that even if you don't have an agent, and even if we didn't ask you, you can submit up to two scripts completely blind, just send it to us, we'll look at it, and we'll tell you if we want it or not. I did that. I wrote a script, and I sent it in. Ronald D. Moore, who ended up being a producer on that show and ended up developing the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. That's how he got in. He walked in and he took a tour and he had a script in his hand and he got it to somebody. They don't do that kind of thing anymore. But if you do something on spec and let's say it's for Star Trek. You go in, you say, I've got this idea. I've got this, this script for Star Trek. Here it is. And they read it and they say... We kind of like it, but we don't like it enough to buy it. And then they go and do that episode. Well, then they owe you for something. If they, if they don't want that particular script, but they hire you to write another script. This story doesn't work for us right now in this season, but we like the way you write. So we want you to write this other thing. Come up with another idea. And you see this in, in the details behind the scenes of all of the different shows, you know, the original series, the animated series, where they'll, they'll kick around various different ideas. They pitch the concept, they pitch the, the story nugget, and the production team will sit there and go, we like this idea, let's see a first draft. At that point, there is a, fin a, a financial obligation and... There's a there's a contractual obligation because when you now say do this for me, you're entering into an agreement by you know with which people are doing work for you. You 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 have to pay them, and if the discovery production team sees this thing that they did on spec. And they say, we like this, but we, you know, we want a new one. At that point, if now I'm saying I want what you're selling and I want it done to my specifications, now, now I'm the client. Now I'm the, I'm the boss, I guess. And I have a financial obligation to compensate the people who are doing the work. So if Secret Hideout says we want a second book, then they're obligated to pay for the work to make the second book. I, that, that's, I don't understand why this would be a problem. Because, well... Let me, let me correct myself because it is Hollywood and this kind of thing I guess happens more often than you might think. And yes, uh, hello Elijah. Yes, that's essentially what she presented, summed up. Uh, she was very elliptical in how she stated it. I think, I, I think this was one of those things where 
they were letting her talk to kind of get everything out so she'd be comfortable with, with sharing whatever it was that she was sharing and, and dealing with. Because it's not a comfortable topic. Hey, I did work. I didn't get paid. I don't like calling these people out because I still want to work with them. But at the same time, if somebody hasn't paid you, then that's a problem and somebody needs to be made aware whether that's whether that's you know John John Van Sitters at CBS licensing if it's you know higher up the food chain at Viacom someone needs to deal with the situation if somebody has done work requested by the production then that someone should get paid for that work regardless of what it was you know I built a prop pay me you know, if the prop gets used or the prop gets, mod, um, you know, modified or whatever else, you know, I designed a costume. I I walked behind the captain's chair in one scene. Any, any kind of work that gets done, you have a responsibility and an obligation to pay for that work. And if she's done this and done the second book per request of Secret Hideout, then Secret Hideout needs to pay her. And by the way, yes, Orville Nation, let me let me do this. Let me put uh, let me put a link in the show notes. I'll put a I'll put a link in the chat here, but I'll also put it in the show notes so you can check out their their uh, channel and <coughs> excuse me check that out and if you haven't subscribed to them you, you feel free but this 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 bothers me probably more I don't know if it's more than it should but it bothers me enough that I don't know I'm 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 thinking Somebody should reach out to CBS and Hidden uh, uh, Secret Hideout and see about you know see see if there's anybody that would that would be willing to address this on camera and go on the record. See, that's the other part of this is you know you you hear rumors all the time, and I know Doomcock says we're not going to get a season five of Discovery, but he also got told we weren't going to get season four. There are people who engage in disinformation campaigns, misinformation campaigns. There are people who outright lie about things, and I'm not saying that's happening here. Uh, but there are, you know, lying is marketing in today's Hollywood. J.J. Abrams does it all the time. And Kevin Smith might have done it with regard to Masters of the Universe. Uh, but dishonesty is not the best policy. And if there's somebody who's willing to go on the record, because off the record you can't prove it. You don't have any. You don't have any recording of it. You don't have any any way of saying yes. This is what happened. This is what somebody said. Now, if I get if I get an interview with somebody and they say this is off the record, I'm at least taking notes. Because off the record could change at some point, depending on circumstances. But if somebody from CBS or Secret Hideout is willing to address some of these stories, 
allegations, rumors, and sit there and say, this what this is what actually happened, or I'm glad you brought it to our attention. We'll look into it. I mean, any, anything to address it. And yeah, Elijah says they won't address it because that will make it more real, even if it isn't real. It, maybe. I think having it out there on uh, on the internet, on the web, uh, does make it real. But yes, I think any kind of an acknowledgement Depending on how it's addressed, if they address it, depending on how it's addressed, if they sit there and go, oh, psh, no, nothing like that ever happened, psh, anything like that, people are going to look a little sideways at it. Um, if there's, you know, the corporate speak, no, we always take seriously every story and every allegation that's accused of the country, you know, that, that, that's tough. Um, that's not going to, that's not going to fly either. Somewhere in between those, there may be somebody who sits there and says, well, you know, we take, we take this, we take these things seriously. We're going to look into it. We're going to address if there, if there are any issues in our personnel and how things are handled, we'll address them. And, you know, some kind of an acknowledgement that there are actual human beings in the midst of all of this who are being affected by this, uh, then, you know, that would be a step. I don't know that that kind of thing would happen uh, because, you know, a lot of times the corporate lawyers get involved. And you see what happened with Disney and and the 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 uh, the tie-in writers. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the stuff with Alan Dean Foster and, and everybody else over there you know, Disney must pay that hashtag that went for a while because these corporate guys, especially the big, big, big corporations, you know, they feel like they can do And This is an impression. This is just me saying this. I don't have any, you know, I don't have any one, one way or the other. I don't have a dog in the fight, but corporations a lot of times get so big that either they feel like they can get away with anything because who's big enough to stop them, or they get into situations where right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing and you have divisions of the corporation doing things that other divisions of the corporation don't know about, which is also a problem. And then, of course, when you get the lawyers involved, the lawyers are always going to confuse and, and muddle the issue because that's their job, is to make the problem go away. And if, if you are sitting there saying that Disney has to pay for these contracts that, well, did... Disney didn't sign those contracts. That was 20th Century Fox that signed those contracts. That was this this company that that signed those contracts. And that company doesn't exist anymore. So we're not obligated to pay. That's legal obfuscation. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. You know, that that kind of thing. It's it's you know, it's hand waving them as you don't see anything, you know, the the Madagascar penguins. There might be some of that, 
that comes out in in response to this, maybe, depending on how how the lawyers get involved, if they get involved. But I would be very interested, and I, I might reach out myself to some of the contacts that we've got to see if there's anybody that would be willing to address this on camera, on the record. Because this is serious if it's true. I'm going to allow for the possibility that there's a misunderstanding somewhere or a miscommunication somewhere. If that's the case, I expect that will come out as well. Like I said before on a number of times, with a number of different stories that come across the wires, first bits of the story don't always pan out to be the actual story once you start getting more details. Uh, There are a lot of times where a story will begin one way and we'll start hearing certain rumblings and some people saying and this, that, the other. But you give it a week. You give it a week and a half. You give it a month. Or you give it six months, say. And the story starts to change. Information starts to come out that you didn't have six months ago. And with certain circumstances being what they are, sometimes, you know, depending on how much the media chooses to cover something, six months later they could decide, oh yeah, it's, it's okay to talk about this now. With the trades and with... Uh, with genre stuff like this, with Star Trek and, and Battlestar Galactica and Doctor Who and all of that, you don't have general media coverage. You're not going to find this story in the L.A. Times or the New York Times or the Washington Post or anything like that. You will find stories like this in things like Deadline or Variety, uh, TrekMovie.com. Or maybe comic book, uh, comicbookmovie.com, or the Mary Sue. You know, in, any of the the genre centric sites, but they're going to be smaller. They're not going to have as as big a readership, viewership, in, in terms of video channels. If anybody's covering it, so the word's not going to get out as wide in terms of distribution of this story. It's not that important to the general public. The fans, you know, you look at stuff with Doctor Who. Radio Times does a lot of coverage of Doctor Who, but it's a very, very small audience when compared to everybody in the world that has access to these stories. So I would probably keep an eye on uh, trekmovie.com. Uh, StarTrekNews.net, I think, is another one that that looks into these kind of things. And certainly, of course, we'll uh, we'll get in touch with Orville Nation and see if we can maybe do some follow-up there. And reach out to some of these people and see if we can get more information, more detail. And if there's any other people out there, like I said, you know, Andrew Moody comes out a couple of weeks ago. And then this story pops the week after that, are we going to get another story that breaks next week? Or is there someone 
waiting to drop some information somewhere, whether it's on Orville Nation or Trek Movie or wherever, uh, that that kicks this open a little bit more. Are we going to hear other stories of trouble on set of Star Trek? Anson Mount just posted over on Twitter. Uh, he's very excited about Strange New Worlds. They're starting to shoot the finale uh, of season one. And he said, uh, fans, this one, this one is going to be, and I hear, I hear this from a number of different places, Strange New Worlds is going to be the closest to the original series that any of these new shows have been. And that's encouraging. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm not getting my hopes up after season one of Picard. I don't have very much interest in season two of Picard. I still have not sat and watched Discovery since the pilot episode. And I know people have said it gets better after season two and it gets better in season three and they finally get, you know, they finally get their legs under them. And I know it goes, you know, along the lines of other shows where the first season is shaky and they're trying to figure things out. But if you're doing a show that lives within a franchise, you already have some of the basic DNA of the show. Now, going from the original series to Next Generation, that's a huge thing. That's a, that's a big leap because you're, you're doing it for the first time. But once Next Generation was underway and they have things figured out and you start in with deep space nine you start with voyager you get enterprise you've been doing it now and it's the same production team doing all of those shows they they get a rhythm to them they get an they get an idea of what those shows are about and so your first season in the subsequent shows are not going to be as shaky hopefully that's the case with Strange New Worlds. Now, Akiva Goldsman has said some things about the production of that show that are encouraging, I think. The fact that it's going to be uh, a little bit more episodic than, than Discovery has been. The idea that it's Pike and it's the Enterprise. That's, you know, interesting to me. I'm not sure that we needed this show, but if this show... If Strange New Worlds comes out and just knocks it out of the park and everybody who is a diehard Star Trek fan looks at this and says, that's Star Trek, then we have a win. If Discovery Season 4 comes out and does the same thing, then I would expect people to acknowledge Discovery Season 4 has finally got it figured out and it's a Star Trek show. This is the other thing that bothers me with some of the people who criticize the shows just because. If you're going to hate on a show, you should be able to back it up. Now, I have sat and said I have not watched Discovery. 
I've read synopses and I've seen some different reviews and discussions of the different productions and the different episodes and whatnot. And I've seen the pilot. And I don't talk very much about Discovery because I've not watched it. So I'm not going to sit there and say, I hate Discovery. I don't hate Discovery. I saw the first episode. It didn't interest me. I don't have an interest in Discovery. I don't have any, any, any desire to sit and watch Discovery. It's entirely possible I'm missing the best Star Trek show ever. I don't think I am. But I watched Picard. I watched season one of Picard and didn't like it. And I've got very specific reasons why I don't like it. And it doesn't have anything to do with politics, although that's peripherally some of it. But the actual production itself, from a craft standpoint, story, characterization, plot, structure, all of those elements of season one of Picard are lacking, sorely lacking. I'm hopeful that Strange New World has it figured out. I'll give it a shot. But I'm not going to hate watch it. And that was one of the things that I decided with regard to Discovery. I'm not going to sit there and watch it just so I can rip it to shreds. I don't have that kind of time to waste. And I don't want to put a lot of emotional effort, emotional investment into something I don't like. That's just me. Your mileage may vary. If you want to hate hate watch something, you know, as is doing it with Batwoman uh, over there on Heel versus Babyface. And if you want to do it kind of riff tracks MST3K style where you 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 rip into something that doesn't make any sense and it's a bet and you know it's a poorly a poorly produced show and you wanna you wanna roast it, that's a different thing. That's not my thing. I'm hopeful that things get resolved. If if anybody is willing to address these concerns, any anyone who's willing to go on, on the record and address these allegations, and if anything else comes up, we'll certainly be covering it. But I don't know. The, I, the more we hear about this kind of thing, and as it is consistent with rumors we hear from the set... I don't have a whole lot of faith in Secret Hideout for much of anything, not just Star Trek. But there's probably a reason why people cringe when you see that Alex Kurtzman is involved. And that goes back prior to Star Trek and his deal with CBS. Uh, okay, so that's going to do it for us today. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, I see, is it Drooby in the chat? Hope you all are having a good day. Stay awesome. You stay awesome as well. Everybody in the chat, stay awesome. Thanks for being here. Tonight, tonight? is today Thursday? Yes, yeah, so tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central, a new edition of the Ranker Pit. 
with a discussion of the latest Star Wars rumors and uh, look at the most recent episode of The Bad Batch. And then on Saturday, of course, we've got Good Morning Multiverse in the morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central. And are we... Yes, we are Foreign Bodies Weekend this week. 1 p.m. Eastern, noon central here. I believe we're still in Ireland for discussion of horror outside the United States. That's what that show is about, so we do hope you join us for that. In the meantime, if you have not subscribed to the channel, we do invite you to do so and have your notifications turned on so you know when we drop uh, new episodes, new installments of all of our shows. We have seven in production currently here. Uh, and that includes uh, two Star Wars shows, a Doctor Who show, a horror show, the news shows, uh, the H2O podcast on Monday night. So there's lots of programming from which you can pick and choose those things you like. And hopefully you're sharing it with your friends. All right, so that's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for being here. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.